Well, the kids getting ready to go back to school has got me thinking about just kind of how much school was a big part of my life, like how much I had kind of love-hate relationship with it, you know, like I loved learning things and um, at the same time, sometimes you didn't want to go to school, like we have those types of conversations. But anyways, I was just thinking, it's been six years since I've sat in a classroom when I was working on my master's. It's been six years since I've completed my master's degree and uh, kind of miss it. I'm talking a lot about school and other stuff. And, and, and then I got to thinking, you know, uh, not only has it been six years since I've been in any type of class, um, the world has kind of changed a little bit since I've been in class. And as a, as, a, as a pastor, it's been a long time since I've consistently gone to a church service that I haven't had responsibilities for, right? And so I've just kind of been thinking about this a lot lately, just how, does, how do I make sure that I'm staying a student? How do I make sure that I continue to learn to meet the challenge of of my task, my role, but also how do I stay uh, in the faithful, developing, uh, kind of as a student of Jesus. You know, a couple weeks ago I talked about being students of teacher Jesus. And one of the ways that I I try to do that, to stay um, a student of what Jesus is trying to teach me and never get to the point that I I feel like I've learned everything or something like that, is I listen a lot to podcasts and audiobooks. So if you ever see me out in the wild, um, the store wherever, I probably have my headphones in and I'm probably listening to a, a book or a podcast, um, trying to learn something new or um, listen to a sermon from another church. Uh, I've got a kind of a catalog of some of my favorite pastors to listen to. Um, but lately I've been listening to a, uh, a podcast called The Rise and, Falls, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, it's put out by Christianity Today and it, it follows kind of the growth and then the the drastic just fall off a cliff of this church in the Seattle area um, that started out as kind of the small little group of thing and never had ambitions to be a mega church. But by the time it hit its heyday, there was like 29, I think, or 30 different campuses. They were in like five or six different states. It was this massive movement all along the West Coast. Um, and it spun off into a church planting organization and, and all that. And it was this huge uh, movement, uh, early 2000s, it was just everywhere. Um, the pastor was Mark Driscoll, and it was this just massive explosion of this, this church in, into the whole like West Coast area. Um, but it fell and fell apart rapidly. Like the lead pastor was accused of uh, some abusive practices, some power struggles within the church, and the, the day after he resigned, all those churches closed. Like Mars Hill was done the day that he was done. It was, and, and so I'm listening to this podcast and it's talking about the toxic culture behind the scenes and, and how some of the, um, the grievances, some of the, the errors, some of the sinful behaviors in this organization were, were given a green light or looked over. They were kind of forgotten because of how big the church was. Like the fruit, that was always the justification. Well, yeah, so this guy might be a little bit abusive. This guy might be a little bit of a power-hungry guy, but look at the fruit of the ministry. And so they kind of kept glossing over it and glossing over it. And so this podcast I've been listening to has been like looking back, talking about how does a church get so far gone that it just implodes on itself. It's a really a sad story when you think about all the different people that, it, this, that were hurt in this, this story. Um, 
And it's funny because I, I just started listening to this podcast shortly after I finished listening to an audio book um, by a pro- professor at a seminary that I took some classes from. Uh, the professor's name is Scott McKnight, and the book is called A Church Called Tove, which Tove is the Hebrew word for good or goodness. And this book explores what went wrong at Willow Creek. And if you're, I don't know how much the Willow Creek thing makes it up into Michigan, but like growing up near Chicago, Willow Creek had a huge shadow over everything Christian in the Chicagoland area. It's this massive church, 20,000 people attended a single location on a Sunday morning. Um, Willow Creek Church was basically a city block in a suburb outside of Chicago. This place was massive. Their campus was, was huge, and their senior pastor, Bill Hybels, was looked up, up upon as like a, a revolutionary pastor type. Like um, He focused on leadership, and he focused on, on, on creating this, what is typically referred to today as seeker-sensitive stuff, like creating a church that, that helps people that aren't big fans of church stuff feel comfortable and feel welcome. And um, Willow Creek, like I said, just has a huge, huge imprint on the Christian culture over the last couple of decades. But a few years ago, some negative uh, behaviors from Bill came to light involving some women in the church. And there was a power struggle again, and eventually he, he resigned, and a lot of it came out to light. And, and people began to question again, how did the church cover up some of these abuses? Why would a church protect the abuser and attack the stories of victims. And so these two stories back to back just really got me thinking about what shapes a church culture and and why would a church protect a victim or an abuser and attack victims. But that's what this podcast, that's what these books are exploring is how do churches get to the point where this is what's happening. And um, I think what what the conclusion of both of these books books and podcasts have been is that church culture is, is leaning to becoming more of a group uh, of people gathering around a charismatic leader um, or getting served without serving others. It was going to, a, you know, Pastor Mark's church or Pastor Bill's church and stuff saying, this is my church, right? There was a group of people that were gathered around a celebrity pastor and the church is, is sadly following our culture's um, lead into becoming fans of celebrity leaders and becoming uh, followers of influencers. And we're becoming consumers of religious goods and services. And so to listen to these stories, is, especially as a pastor, is just heartbreaking. And we've been in this, this series and we've been asking, does, does church matter? As we've been asking that question, our society, our culture has been asking that question. Like, why should we go to church? Why should we be part of it? And then, like I said, as these two major, well-known, massive churches, Mars Hill, Willow Creek, went through a very public, humiliating, scandalous revelation of abuse of power within their own organization, people are asking, what is church really about? Why would I want to go be a part of something like that? Um, and then to see the church double down when it's accused of things to cause more harm and more hurt trying to defend its leaders or defend itself. And so while there is this toxic and corrupting trend in, in the church, in our culture, that the church seems to uh, unable to avoid, um, there is some good news. Um, the good news is that this isn't a new thing. 
This isn't something that is gonna catch God by surprise. This isn't something that I mean, we might be shocked by it when we hear some of the details. As I listen to the podcast going, I can't believe a pastor would do that. I can't believe a church would do that. Um, God was not surprised. And these scriptures uh, that we find in our Bible, there's a lot of scriptures that are written to guide us to being a healthy church and to being mature in our faith in Christ. And so this morning I'm gonna ask us to look at Ephesians chapter four, uh, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, they'll be on the screen or if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to follow along there as well. Um, but Ephesians 4, verse, uh, starting in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words um, from this letter, this book of Ephesians, uh, written 2,000 years ago to people that we don't know in a culture that is so different than ours. And yet through your spirit and through your presence with us this morning, your word speaks to us. And so we are grateful that you are not only a God who showed up then, but you are a God that continues to show up, continues to make holy, continues to sanctify those that you have gathered. Uh, be with us this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So Ephesians, this book that we just read a little bit of, it, it actually was a letter, I know we call it a book, but it was actually a letter written, um, sent to the church in Ephesus, uh, a lot of the letters we find in our New Testament were written to specific churches dealing with specific problems. So, you know, Paul would write a letter to the church in Rome talking about, you know, the conflict between Jewish Christians and Roman Christians, or uh, Gentile Christians, right? Um, sometimes these letters were written for specific reasons spent, sent to specific audiences. Ephesians is one of the few ones that as we read through it, it doesn't address any one specific thing. It wasn't like Paul said, oh, those guys over there, they're messing up this one thing. I need to send them a letter to address it. Um, in fact, there's many scholars that believe it's what's called a circular letter, where they would write the letter um, for the purpose of encouragement or instruction, but it's a little bit more generic, um, maybe a little bit more instructional, a little bit more educational. Um, it doesn't address any specific sins or any specific problems, but it's this letter to provide a deeper understanding of the Christian life. And they would send it uh, to multiple churches. They would send it out, uh, make multiple copies of it, or they'd send it to one church with the instructions that when you were done with it, to send it to another church or to make a copy of it and send it on to the next one, or the messenger would go to the next church when they were done. But it was this, what was called circular. They would go from church to church with this letter, this message, um, what we have in our Bible, obviously, is the, the version or the copy of that letter that went to the church in Ephesus. Um, and the point was that churches would be strengthened and, and encouraged. 
Now, to understand how this letter functioned or how it would work, we need to remember that church then was not like church today. They didn't have, uh, you know, a building like this that was set aside in town with a set worship time. Um, you know, we're going to worship from this time to that time, and here's the order of service and all of that type of thing. Um, it was much more driven by home churches. People would meet in their homes for meals. They would sing songs. They would share scriptures. They would pray for one another. It would all happen kind of in homes um, or in uh, small communities. They'd have gathering places there. But it wasn't like church as an official organization in town. They weren't a 501c3 with a, you know, government tax status and stuff. They were relationships. They were networks. They were communities. They were families that met together to live out these practices that Jesus had instructed them to follow. And so over time, the clergy, the pastors, were, were set apart. Um, other church leaders were set apart, not as people that were supposed, supposed to be CEOs to rule and to have all the power and all the authority. They were set apart as shepherds to ensure that the communities, the life of that community was, was lived out faithfully, um, to make sure that the faith was practiced according to the teachings um, so, for example, the, the pastors, the clergy, were responsible to make sure communion was properly observed and that it that functioned well in the community. We see in, in, in several places, Paul writing to churches, talking about you know, people getting there early and, and drinking the good wine or, or the rich people taking the best food and leaving the scraps for the poor people. Like, that's what pastors were there for, was to make sure that the life of the community was, was lived out based on the values of the teachings of Jesus. Or that baptism, those who were being baptized were, were properly catechized, that they had received not only the right instruction, but that their, their nature, their character was formed into Jesus. And so they kind of, not, they were gatekeepers of some sense, but they were also ones to ensure that Christian character was being formed in the community. They were shepherds, not CEOs. They made sure that the traditions and the teachings were not corrupted, whether intentionally or unintentionally. They made sure that the, the teachings, um, as they all gathered together and shared scriptures, that the teachings didn't go off track and go off into a direction that was contrary to the way Jesus taught. Um, and then they were there to settle disputes and disagreements, not just in doctrines and biblical ideas, um, but in practices of faith. And so that's why clergy were originally set apart, why, they were, why the role of pastor became what it was. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, uh, that we read just a moment ago, it says, Jesus gave the church, these apostles, these prophets, these evangelists, these pastors, these teachers, Jesus gave the church these uh, people. And this is why ordination is such a big deal um, for pastors and for the church. Ordination is the act of setting apart, of, of, of identifying somebody with a very specific task. Um, and for those of us who are ordained or have been or gone through the process or going through the process, ordination isn't a graduation. It's not a completion uh, saying, well, you're done, you've crossed the finish line. It's not the same as graduating from high school or graduating from college. Nor is it a promotion. It's not a, well, I'm moving up in status in the world. It's, you know, uh, I get a bump in pay or I get an extra week of vacation. Or, ordination is not a promotion. Um, it's not a graduation. Ordination is an acknowledgement, an agreement that Jesus gave this person to the church. This is what Ephesians 4.11 tells us. 
Jesus gave this person to the church. And it's this person, one who submits themselves to ordination, that person is acknowledging that giving, that gift, and saying, I give myself to the church. And ordination is the church receiving this person as a gift from Jesus. Like I said, it's not a graduation. It's not something an individual can do themselves. It's not a promotion. It's not meant to bump up your status, but it's a giving of a person to the life of the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, we can ask the question, why does Jesus give people to the church? And verse 12 answers that. It says, to equip the church for the works of service. So Jesus has called and given people to equip the congregations, the people of the church, for the works of service. And this reveals that there's an expectation from the beginning. There's an assumption, there's a motivation behind what Jesus is doing. There's this idea that the church has works of service to do. A pastor equips, enables, empowers the church to do that work, those works of service. And still in verse 12, we can ask the question, as people are equipped and perform works of service, what happens? Well, in this letter, Paul says, when the church is doing works of service, it is built up. The church is built up. That's what it says in verse 12. The church is built up as we do works of service. But verse 13 reminds us that the church is built up, but it's not in the sense of size of congregation. And it's not in the sense of power or influence it has in its community. When Paul is saying that the church is built up, he's not saying it's built up because there's more people in the chairs or in the pews and there's more status or reputation in the community. We don't become more important people or something like that. When, he, when Paul is talking about the church being built up in verse 13, he says through equipping and serving the church is built up in unity and maturity. Through equipping and serving, the church is built up in unity and maturity. Equipping and serving changes the nature, the character, the soul of a church. It grows in unity and maturity. And he says in verse 13 again, until the church reaches the fullness of Christ. So it's, we're growing up in unity. We're growing up in maturity as we are doing these works of service until we reach the fullness of Christ, the full representation of who Jesus is. And again, it's important to, to remind uh, ourselves this morning that, that growing into the fullness of Jesus isn't just an individual effort. It's not an individual thing. The goal is not for one person to look like Jesus, but rather for the church to be built up in unity and maturity means that a community that lives together reflects and demonstrates the character and nature of Jesus. If people looked at the way that we as a body function together, would they see Jesus? Would they see the character and nature, the wholeness, the fullness of Jesus in our community? Ephesians 14 says that the fullness in Christ, maturity, and unity is deep-rooted. It's a deep-rooted way of living that prevented the early church from being pushed around by waves, being blown around by the wind, to be influenced uh, by teachings not anchored to the traditions and practices, to be mature, to be united in Christ, to be the fullness of Christ's image means to be anchored 
in traditions and practices so that we're not vulnerable to deceitful and manipulative people so that the, the teachings of, of people that don't have the best intentions don't come and sway and blow us every which way. So this fullness of Christ, this, this deep-rooted wholeness, nature, character, allows us to have deep roots in the way of Jesus. In verse 15, uh, we're reminded that the church is called to share the truth. Uh, and here, the truth is more than just information or ideas. When he talks about the truth being Jesus, the truth being God, it's the truth is traditions and practices that it received. It shares what it has been given um, in love. So as the church proclaims and lives truth in love, it becomes more like Jesus. And then verse 16, under the authority of Jesus, under his leadership with Christ as the head, Paul says, under his care, under his shepherding, under his kingship, the body of Christ grows stronger and more loving. How does it grow stronger and more loving? What does Paul say that is an indicator or a method or a means to growing stronger and building itself up? It says, as each part does its work. And so we've come full circle. Um, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. I know I say everyone is, and every week when I study, I'm like, man, I really love this, this passage of scripture. Um, but this one informs my philosophy of ministry. This one informs my core foundational beliefs about what ministry is, about what a pastor is, what a church is, and most importantly, uh, how those ideas and those beliefs turn into lived action, Right? My philosophy of ministry is not the same as it was when I was in college, when I was studying and preparing for ministry. The way that I understand the church, the way that I understand ministry, the way that I understand pastoring has been shaped by experiences in the church. It's, it's been shaped by me working to understand how beliefs shape practices, how our interpretations of scripture, how our understandings of the church, of, of clergy, of what pastors are and what pastors do, all of that, how it shapes the culture for better or for worse. So for example, when I was um, serving as a volunteer in children's ministry uh, many, many years ago, <clears throat> I was serving in an understaffed children's ministry. It was a large children's ministry. There was kids everywhere, kids everywhere. And I volunteered to serve to help out. Um, and I remember asking the pastor that was in charge of that ministry, like, when are we going to get more help? Like, every Sunday is just chaos over here. Um, we don't need, can we at least ask? Like, can we put an announcement uh, in the bulletin? Can we, can we announce it from the pulpit? Can we ask, maybe as parents come to pick up their kids, say, hey, how about you take a week and help? Like, I don't know, like it was, a, it was a large church. It felt like the resources should have been there to help out. And when I asked, like, can we ask for help? Can we talk to some parents maybe? Um, the response I got was, we're here to serve people. People come to our church because we serve them. We serve their families. So that was a no. Like, we weren't gonna ask for help. Help wasn't coming, <laughs> And besides being a frustrated ministry volunteer at that point who felt like help was never going to come, something about this idea just didn't sit right with me. And maybe it was because I grew up in a smaller church where like, my family all served in a variety of capacities, even 
from a young age, we were involved in serving in a variety of ways. Um, so maybe that was part of it, but I had a hard time accepting this philosophy of ministry that was presented to me. This idea that the church, the church was the pastoral staff. The church was the paid staff. The church was the volunteer ministry leaders. And the people that came on Sunday morning came to be served by the church, but they weren't the church. It just didn't sit right with me. The idea that we had people that would come every Sunday, but if we asked them to serve, to ask them to help, that they would leave, we'd somehow offend these religious customers. And during that time, I wrestled with this as a, it was a formative time in my life and my preparation for ministry. And I, I recalled 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says, you are a royal priesthood. The idea behind that was that this priesthood of all believers. And, and growing up as a, as a Protestant, you know, non-Catholic person, somebody that's in a tradition that followed the Reformation, um, I was taught to believe that the royal priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, meant that I didn't need a priest. Like, I didn't need to go to a Catholic priest for confession or to have them, you know, forgive my sins, that I could go directly to God, I could go directly to Jesus, which is true, right? We believe that. But as I wrestled with this, during this time, I realized what it meant was that if we were all priests, we all had that responsibility. It wasn't that priests no longer existed. It was that all of us had the responsibility to be a priest. Now, what is a priest? A priest is somebody who stands in front of God on behalf of somebody else. And a priest is somebody who stands in front of somebody else on behalf of God. Right? We represent God to people and we represent people to God. And the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, is telling us that we're all priests. So not only does that mean we can have a direct relationship with God, but that every Christian has received spiritual gifts and a calling to serve in the kingdom of God. Basically, the takeaway to sum up is if you are a citizen in the kingdom of God, then you have a role to play in the kingdom of God. Not only that, but we can see the effects of a church culture where we view people as consumers, as customers, rather than members of a family. This approach, this philosophy of ministry, this attitude can, can get toxic really fast. Consumers, customers, look for the best product they can get, right? The best return for their money, the best, the, the best service they can receive, right? And so they look for the best product. So church... Leadership, when we start thinking about people as customers or consumers, church leadership then has to, to focus on presentation and performance rather than mission and message. Right? We're, we have to, if we're trying to attract customers or consumers, then we have to, to worry about what does it look like? How did we perform this week? Rather than what was our mission and what was our message? Church can quickly move from being a, a, a gathering of faithful believers to a time of entertainment and spectacle. Entertainment and spectacle can become the mission rather than formation and discipleship. And when that happens, like I said, this can go toxic fast. This can go way wrong real fast. We start looking at other churches, maybe even in our community, not as partners in ministering to our neighborhoods, not as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we see them as competition for this audience. 
A small group of pastors, staff, and volunteers burn out trying to meet the needs and wants that everyone brings to the table. As that team wears down and as people leave or get frustrated or their, their ability to minister and care for others wears down over time, they're less able to provide that high-quality customer service that the religious consumers want. And so it becomes this, this vicious cycle. We're not able to give people what they're looking for, so they, we try harder to do it, and we get more burnout, more worn out, and less people are satisfied because the service goes down and we can do less. And it just becomes this vicious cycle of disappointing everybody and burning everybody out. And this is really magnified in the era of the internet because it gives us the access to the best preaching, the best music. I could go on my phone and listen to the best preachers in the whole world at any point in time. Just go to YouTube. I can go find the best. Or if I want the best musicians, I can go and find that with high production value. Fog machines and laser lights and, and all the, you know, all that. We, can, we could... Find the best. But what happens in the worst case scenario is that the local church becomes irrelevant. Like given the choice, if if we're looking for entertainment, if we're looking for quality of performance and presentation, and we compare what we do in this room with what a mega church is doing on a Sunday morning, we aren't going to be able to compete. If the evaluation is on performance, entertainment value. Like, I'm just, I'll just flat out, I'm not as entertaining as some other pastors. I'm not that exciting. I'm really not. Um, I'm not, I didn't feel called to be a public speaker even. So, like, pastor, anyways. Um, if you compare us with others, like, on those marks, we're not going to be doing well. So after years of listening, watching, exploring church culture and practices, looking at teachings, listening to things like the podcast about Mars Hill or... Uh, you know, about Willow Creek and other churches where the cultures become toxic and, and harmful. I've come to the conclusion, um, and it sounds a lot like what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. We can put the first or the next slide up. There's a connection between the church's willingness to serve and a church's sense of unity and a church's sense of maturity. This is what Paul was saying in Ephesians 4. There's a connection between our church's willingness to serve and our church's sense of unity, a church's maturity in Christ. If we're not careful, we can easily slip into becoming religious consumers where we expect to be served rather than understanding our call to serve others. If we walk into a church expecting to have our wants and our needs met, other people with needs and wants become competition. Right? This is why Paul says unity is connected to serving. Consumers competing for their wants and their needs will never experience unity. Think uh, of shoppers on Black Friday trying to get the $10 Blu-ray player. Right? They're not there to cooperate. There's no sense of unity as people are fighting to get those last two Blu-ray players off the shelf. They came on a mission to get that $10 Blu-ray player and they're going to get it. Right? Or people uh, trying to buy toilet paper during a pandemic, right? It divides us. <laughs> There's no sense of unity when it was every man for himself. 
The church grows in unity and maturity as the equipped people of God serve. Paul is, is connecting a church's heart, a church's nature to its willingness to serve others. Our church will only be as healthy and only be as mature to the extent that we serve each other and experience service as something we give rather than something we demand or expect. So as a pastor, I understand uh, that inviting, equipping, empowering, encouraging uh, other people to serve, to do the works of ministry, my investment, my choice of making that a priority, that will have a greater impact on the life of the church than me just doing something for myself. And I know that none of you have, have ever thought this, but I've had conversations, I've been a part of conversations that went something like this. Why would I need to go visit somebody in the hospital? Isn't that what the pastor is supposed to do? Why would I need to teach a class or lead a prayer meeting or lead a small group or take meals to people? Isn't that why we have staff at the church? When I was interviewing here, I, I think I made the comment to the, to the board when they were asking me all the questions, trying to get to know me, and I said, I'm very much interested in coming to minister to this church, but I'm also very much interested in coming and ministering with this church because you together are doing ministry. You're ministering to the community. You're ministering to families. You're ministering to each other. And as a pastor, I would love to come and minister, come alongside you, equip, empower, and support you in that which you feel called to do. And what Paul is saying in this letter is that the church grows in unity and maturity as the equipped people of God serve others. So as a pastor, growing in unity, growing in maturity as a church is more important to me than growing in attendance or growing in our financial records. We would better represent Jesus and the kingdom of God as a small, united, and mature church that serves freely that looks more like Jesus than a large church that's impressive, that attracts a huge crowd, a huge uh, gathering of religious consumers who expect to be served. And so the invitation for us today is to approach each situation asking, how can I serve someone here? What do I have that I can give? Our culture forms us to think about our own needs and wants first, and this is why church matters. This is why I'm talking about service today because our culture is, is, is all in on saying you get what you need first. Think about yourself first. It teaches us to fear scarcity. <laughs> if you don't get what you need first, you're not gonna have it. If somebody else gets something, it means that they took it from you. Every man for himself, there isn't enough. This is what our culture teaches us and, and teaches us to be afraid of each other. It teaches us that when push comes to shove, that everyone is on their own. And, and there's a polite way to say this. It might sound like, well, I really hope you get what you need. I hope you can find what you're looking for. But I'm kind of busy right now taking care of my own needs to help. I mean, it sounds polite. It sounds nice. But a church that is comprised of people who have been invited, equipped, and empowered to serve others as a priority, as a core to our identity, is going to be countercultural. Would a church like that make a difference? 
Would a church like that matter? I think a church that looked to serve others first is going to stand out like a city on the hill. It's going to make a difference in the lives of our families, our neighbors, our coworkers, and classmates. Right? We'll be distinctive. As the rest of our society says, me first, we say, you first. People, what? That's different. But it will also form us together as a united, mature, Christ-like community comprised of deeply rooted, sanctified followers of Jesus. Why should we look to serve others? A lot of times I, ha- I have these questions in there and then I'll, I'll answer the questions in my sermon notes, like a big long explanation of what I want to make sure I communicate. For this week it just says, why should we look to serve others? And I say, because Christians serve others. <laughs> it's just what Jesus taught us. He says, you serve other people. This is what Paul is telling. You serve other people. Christians serve others. Now, this isn't to shame or judge anyone who has real needs. There's many in our congregation, many in our church that, whether it be because of health or, or financial or relational stuff, have real needs. And this isn't to shame you for asking for help. This isn't intent, uh, intended to say, well, you just don't do enough. This isn't a, a work everybody up in a frenzy to do stuff type of message. That's not the point. So don't hesitate to ask for help, for prayer, encouragement, whatever you need. Because if we are a congregation that is focused on serving another, when you raise your hand and say help, there should be a line of people going, how can I help you? Right? There should be more people here to help you in your moments of need, not less. And so in a society that says depending on others, asking for help, depending on uh, on others is a sign of weakness. The kingdom of God says that serving others in need is serving Christ. We shame people that need help. We, we define health by our, uh, our independence, our lack of need from other people. You're healthy if you don't need anything from anybody else. <laughs> right? That's how we even define health. But Jesus identifies himself with those who has needs. He says the highest work a Christian can do is to serve others. And so as part of this sermon series where we come alongside our culture and say, does church matter? I'm going to stand up here and say church matters because no other place are you going to find people shaped by Jesus to care for other people in a self-sacrificing way that Jesus teaches us. I think of the the podcasts and the audiobooks and the stories that come out about scandal and abuse and abuse of power in the church and it grieves my heart because somewhere along the line the church lost its sense of mission and somewhere along the line people gave abuses and difficult things and, and bad things a pass because we said well they're doing good work so it can't be all bad but why should we look to serve others because as, uh, as a pastor who seeks to equip, empower, and encourage you to walk in your calling, uh, I'm praying that you say yes to whatever Jesus is calling you to do. And I see a big part of my job as supporting you as you walk in those, those moments, as you walk in faithful obedience to what Jesus is calling you to do. And so as a congregation, as a church, as a family gathered by God, Let us depend more on each other. Let us look to serve each other. Let us look to see what God has given us, not as my own stockpile, but as a a 
a stockpile that is to be resources shared to be good stewards of what God has given us. Why should we look to serve others? Because Christians serve others. Because Jesus serves others.